I hope you've heard my heart that as we go through the book of Revelation, that this is not primarily a series in which we are working and striving to get all the details right of what's going to come in the future. This is not a series on end times whereby we want to make sure that at the end of the series everybody's able to line this up or fill out charts or answer these questions or put these things in that order. Primarily, first and foremost, this is a series on the book of Revelation, which is a fabulous, although difficult, book of the Bible. And the goal of the series is for God to speak to our lives today using what's going to come in the future. Having said that, sometimes it's important to understand the details of what's coming in the future so that God can use those things to speak to our lives today. This is one such week. And so whereas the main goal for this morning is for God to say to us from Revelation 13 what he has for us, I feel like in order for him to do that, we need to work through some of the details of the timeline and some of the things that will be happening in the future so that we can get what God has to say to us in the present. So let's start with this chart that we have used uh, throughout the series. This is just a high-level overview of what I believe is coming in the future. And we've sort of laid out the major events. Let me remind you that the book of Revelation, especially starting with chapter 6 is taken up with that section that is labeled the tribulation. Revelation 6 is dealing with that portion of the future. And specifically where we are currently in Revelation 13 and where we've been for the past couple weeks and where we'll be for the next few weeks is that part halfway through the tribulation known as the Great Tribulation. It is a period of three and a half years, and that's where the events of Revelation 13 take place. So let's zoom in on that three and a half year period known as the Great Tribulation. We talked about the fact that the Great Tribulation has an event that kicks it off. During the seven years of tribulation, halfway through, three and a half years through, Satan will cause a person identified in the Bible as the beast, or sometimes called the Antichrist, to set himself up in God's rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and to be worshiped. This event was prophesied for us in the Old Testament as well as by Jesus. This event of the Antichrist being worshipped in God's temple is known as the abomination that causes desolation. So on the graphic, I've labeled that for us. That is the beginning event that transforms the tribulation and moves it into the great tribulation, the final three and a half years. Now, to understand why this is called the abomination that causes desolation, we have to understand this event a little bit from God the Father's perspective. Imagine how he feels. He has declared that his son, Jesus, who has willingly sacrificed chosen to become a human for all of eternity so that he might rescue humanity. Jesus, the only one 
the only one who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and to bring in the future, the one who willingly died for your salvation and for mine, the one to whom God has said, there is no one like him. And therefore God has given Jesus, this Jesus, a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, God the Father wants every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus deserves all praise and honor and glory. This is his beloved son who did what no one can even fathom. And yet, in God's very house, a person who is the opposite of Jesus is being worshiped instead of Jesus. The offense is almost infinite. This is why it is called an abomination. This is the strongest possible language to use. This is a thing that is so wicked and so evil and so wrong that there's never an event like it in human history. At this time, because of Satan's hand in this abomination, God casts Satan out of heaven and he is never allowed to return again. We talked about that some last week. It's what I identified on the graphic here as the war in heaven. That Satan and his demonic forces wage war against Michael and his angels and Satan is cast down, kicked out of heaven, defeated and God bars the doors of heaven so that Satan is never allowed to return again. He's cast down to the earth. And there, this was the picture we looked at last week, this final scene from the life of Satan. And this is what I identified on the graphic as Satan's rampage on the earth. He no longer has access to heaven and he is released to the earth. And for three and a half years, it says in the scriptures, he knows his time is short. And so he unleashes evil that has never been seen before on the earth. This is the great tribulation. There is wickedness and evil and darkness that has never been experienced before and never will be experienced again. During this time, you would think, with all the wickedness, with all the evil, with all the blaspheming, with a person being worshiped by humans in Jesus' spot, you would think that God would simply be done. But instead, God cannot stomach the fact that one person might perish who could possibly be saved. And so during this time, God sends two witnesses. We talked about this from Revelation 11. It's all happening during these three and a half years. And these two witnesses go around sharing the gospel and leading through their death and resurrection seemingly millions of people to faith. This is all happening during this three and a half year period called the Great Tribulation. Revelation 13 is describing stuff that is going on during this time. And it mentions two people, two beings. The first we've already alluded to. The first is called the beast out of the sea, sometimes referred to as the first beast because in our passage there are two beasts and this one comes first. 
and more commonly or popularly identified as the Antichrist. This is the person who is responsible for the abomination that causes desolation. Revelation 13 is about his activities during this three and a half year period. There is a second beast in Revelation 13. This one is referred to as the beast out of the earth, also called the second beast. And sometimes, though Revelation 13 doesn't use this language, sometimes this person is referred to as the false prophet. And Revelation 13 tells us of the activities of these two beings during this three and a half year period. Now, we're about to look at Revelation 13 and there's some confusing stuff as we go through this. As an acknowledgement of that, let me just tell you up front what I think God's point in giving us Revelation 13 today is. It's not just so that we can understand these things. The point is this. Last week we talked about how Satan is our great enemy. He attacks us. He tempts us. And perhaps above all, he seeks to deceive us. Revelation 13 is God saying to us that one of the primary ways that Satan chooses to deceive us is by counterfeiting what God does. So let's take a Bible, if you will, and turn to Revelation 13, and let's look together at how Satan will attempt to counterfeit God's work in the future so that we might be able to identify today how Satan attempts to counterfeit what God does in our lives. Revelation 13, it's page 998 in the church Bibles. We begin with the first beast, the Antichrist, who is described in chapter 13, 1 to 10. The dragon, that's Satan, stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. That's the Antichrist. Sometimes he's called the lawless one. Sometimes Revelation refers to him as the beast. There are three ways in which the Antichrist is Satan's attempt to counterfeit what God is doing. The first is in verse three. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. <clears throat> okay, a person with what was or appeared to be a fatal wound on their body. Who is that supposed to remind us of? Jesus that even after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he appears to his disciples and says, put your finger in the hole in my hand. It's still there. Put your hand in my side where I was pierced with a sword with a fatal wound. He wasn't killed by that wound, but it's a wound that would have killed him. Here is the beast seeming to have his own fatal wounds. It's Satan counterfeiting what God does. This is why this is the anti-Christ. The second way this person is a counterfeit. Verse four, people worship the dragon, that's Satan, because he had given authority to the beast. They also worship the beast and asked, who is like the beast? 
who can wage war against it? In God's kingdom, we offer worship to God the Father. And God the Father tells us we are supposed to also worship God the Son. Here, as Satan is doing his counterfeit, he wants worship for himself as well as for the Antichrist to be worshiped. Third way in which there is a counterfeit, verse five and verse seven. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. Jump down to verse seven, second half of verse seven. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Again, who does that sound like? Jesus, that God the Father who has all authority gives authority to Jesus so that Jesus can say all authority in heaven and earth is mine. Here Satan who does not have all authority but does have some authority, delegated authority that God allows him to have. Jesus says he is the prince of the power of the air. He exercises authority over the kingdoms of the earth. Here Satan takes his authority and gives it to the beast. This is what the Father does with Jesus and Satan is counterfeiting what God does. The second half of Revelation 13 is about this second beast. Verse 11, then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. This is sometimes referred to as the false prophet, but this second beast is meant to be a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. So that in Revelation 12 and 13, you have an unholy trinity. You have Satan who wants to be in the place of God the Father. You have the Antichrist who is meant to be a counterfeit of Jesus. And you have this false prophet or this second beast who is meant to be a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. Satan is taking who God is, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and trying to create an unholy trinity. This second beast is a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit also in three ways. Number one, verse 13. And it, this second beast, performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit does signs and wonders to authenticate Jesus' message and those who are speaking on behalf of God. This second beast will perform some signs and wonders to try to get people to worship the, false, uh, the, the Antichrist. The second way in which it is a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit, verse 15. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Little confusing what's going on here. Essentially, there is the Antichrist, and then there is a statue made of the Antichrist. The second beast causes that statue not to come alive, but to actually speak. And this is an amazing thing. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us life. The Holy Spirit is the one who is the breath in our lungs. He breathes the life of God into us. And so this unholy spirit, this false prophet, this second beast is attempting to counterfeit what the true Holy Spirit does. And then third, 
verse 16, it also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. If you glance down in chapter 14, if you go home and you read this on your own, you come next week and we read through it together, you'll find that there are also 144,000 believers in Jesus who are present during this three and a half years. And they are marked with the Holy Spirit. It's a seal identifying and protecting them from what is going on. The mark that they have is a physical sign of a spiritual reality that you and I experience now if you're a believer in Jesus, which is when you put your faith in Jesus, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are marked with the Holy Spirit that the spiritual world sees God's stamp upon our lives in the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is Satan's attempt to counterfeit that by giving all the people who are following the Antichrist a physical mark on their forehead or on their hand. This is Satan's attempt to counterfeit what God does. Now what's going on during Satan's rampage on the earth is the worst example of Satan as a counterfeiter, meaning the most devastating example. But this has been his pattern throughout history. Think of Moses in Egypt trying to get Pharaoh to release the children of Israel. Moses does a number of plagues. But do you remember the story? There are also some Egyptian magicians who do some counterfeit plagues along the way. This is Satan empowering them to try to deceive Pharaoh so that he won't let the children of Israel go and so that, God can, so that Satan can keep the children of Israel in bondage and captivity. In the book of Numbers, Satan offers a number of counterfeit leaders to try to take Moses's place in leading the children of Israel to keep them from getting to the promised land. When you get to 1 Kings and Jeroboam separates the 10 tribes in the north from the two tribes in the south, immediately in the north, he sets up a counterfeit temple to the one in Jerusalem, a counterfeit priesthood who are not descended from Levi, and a counterfeit set of religious festivals that are just one month off from the Jewish festivals as spelled out in the scriptures. When Ezra and Nehemiah bring the people back into the land after exile and get ready to rebuild the temple, there are people there who claim to be Jews and claim to be ready to help do the work on the temple, but they are counterfeits. They are from Satan and they mean only to disrupt and keep the work from continuing. Even Jesus, when he's on the earth, he's teaching his disciples that the Messiah must suffer. And Peter pulls him aside and says, no, 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 my Messiah doesn't need to suffer. Jesus immediately recognizes this is not from God. This is a counterfeit. Not Peter himself, but Peter is being influenced by Satan's deceptive counterfeiting. And so Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Peter as well, when he's leading the early church. And people begin to give tithes and offerings and gifts to support the work of the ministry. 
Many good and, and pleasing gifts are given to the Lord, but one man comes in named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. And it looks like a, just another gift like all the ones we just saw, but this one's a counterfeit. This one is from Satan. And Peter smells it out and he says, wait a second, this is not from the Spirit, this is from Satan. What about today? You can look at the events that happened in our nation on January 6th at the Capitol. The crowd that was gathered there did actually look a little bit like a church. Some of the signs had Jesus' name on them. Is that from God? Or is that a counterfeit from Satan? People recently have been banned from social media for saying things that others consider to be inappropriate or offensive. Is that from God, stopping people from saying things they shouldn't be saying? Or is that a counterfeit from Satan? If it's your workplace, someone comes to you and is encouraging you to give more energy and effort and time and more of your heart to work, is that from the Lord? Or might that be a deception from Satan? If you're looking for someone to marry or someone for a leadership position at a church or in a school or a business, you're looking for someone to fill a position, how will we know if the person that you are looking at or the person that you're considering, is this person from God? Or is it possibly a counterfeit being offered by Satan? There's a very sobering chapter in 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul talks about this exact problem. He says, I will keep on doing what I am in doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. You know, you might think that a false apostle, that it'd be obvious. But they're not gonna walk around wearing a name tag saying, I'm a false apostle. Their name tag says, I'm a true apostle, but they're not. They are masquerading as a true apostle. And hey, who wouldn't pick an apostle to be in charge of a church? Who wouldn't be a, pick an apostle to help out at your Christian business or at your Christian school or wherever? The problem is, is what if you have a deceitful worker masquerading as an apostle? Paul says, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. So the question is, since Satan is so good at counterfeiting, how can you and I tell the difference today between what is from God and what is from Satan? How can we recognize a true apostle from a false apostle? How can we recognize when events in our world or in our businesses or our schools or our families have God as their source? And how can we tell when Satan is behind them? Well, because of God's grace to us, in Revelation 13, we have Satan's most deceptive counterfeiting. And in this very passage, we can see three clues to help us to recognize when it's God and when it's Satan. Clue number one. 
love for enemies. Love for enemies. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. This is what we call the mark of the beast. The second beast forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark. Meaning, if you do not have the mark of the beast, if you are not for the Antichrist, if you are not aligned with the Antichrist, you can't participate in the economy. You can't go out and buy food. You can't participate in the things that are going on. It's simply forbidden and not allowed. Now compare that with what Jesus tells us about his heavenly father in Matthew 6. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And look what God does. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Does God let unrighteous people eat? Yes. Does he let them participate in the economy? Yes, even if they're not sealed with the Holy Spirit, does he still bless them? Yes, because he loves even his enemies. We see that fullest in this passage in verse eight. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. And here's the phrase, the Lamb, Jesus, who was slain from the creation of the world. The Antichrist only looks like he died. He didn't actually die. Jesus gave his life. For who? For you, for me, and for his enemies. That God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Even in the midst of the great tribulation, when people are worshiping the Antichrist, when they are uttering proud blasphemies and arrogance, wickedness that the world has never seen before, God sends two witnesses. Why? Because he wants people to be saved. Why do I think that what happened in the Capitol on January 6th in this country was not from God, but a counterfeit from Satan? There was no love for anybody's enemies there. There was not the heart of God there. There was not the kindness that we would expect. God causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. And nothing that I saw gave me any sense that the people who were there, even though Jesus' name was on the signs, I did not have any sense that the love that God has for those who disagree with him was present in the midst of that assembly. Why do I think that banning people from social media, although it has the appearance of righteousness, is not actually from God, but a counterfeit from the evil one? How does God treat those who disagree with him? Think during these three and a half years of all of the blasphemies and all of the things that will be uttered that God will allow to go on. Think today of all the ways just today that Jesus' name will be taken in vain. Think of all the things that will be said that are full of hatred, 
that are full of arrogance or wickedness. But in God's love for his creation, he allows us to exercise free will and to speak things even when we use that to speak against Jesus. First clue we're looking for, if it's from God, there is some form of love for enemies in it. Second, what we're looking for is resurrection life. John has gone out of his way to make sure we understand that the Antichrist, the first beast, did not actually die. It only seems like a fatal wound. Why? Because if the beast had died, Satan doesn't have the power to raise him from the dead. This is why John goes out of his way to tell us that the speaking image is not actually alive. It is a miraculous sign because this inanimate object is actually speaking as if it were alive. But the point is, is that it's just simply got speaking breath in it. It does not have life in it. Satan cannot create life. He doesn't have the power to do it. If you go back to the 10 plagues, they start out where they are, uh, the magicians and Moses are going back and forth, the counterfeits and the true examples. Do you know the plague where Satan has to drop out of the contest? It's the dust turned into gnats. Satan cannot make dead things into living things. God can. And from that plague on, Satan's not showing up anymore. A corollary to this is if you go back to those 10 plagues, I mean, you got Egyptian magicians and they're turning the Nile to blood and they can cause frogs to be an infestation in the country. But do you notice every time that Pharaoh needs something cleaned up, who does he go to? He doesn't go to the magicians. If they had real power, he would just be like, okay, get the frogs out of here. He has to go to Moses because Satan can make a mess. He can't clean one up. Jesus makes this same point when he casts a demon out during his time on earth and the Jewish leaders say, oh, you did this by the power of Satan. They accuse him of a counterfeit miracle. And Jesus says, don't you realize Satan doesn't clean up messes. He can't clean up messes. All he does is seek, kill, and destroy. And then Jesus goes on to say something very powerful. He says, this world, our generation, all of us living after the time of Jesus, are only going to receive one unambiguous sign. One thing that when you see it, you're going to know that can't be counterfeited. Casting out demons, well, you can accuse Jesus of doing it by the power of Satan. Calling down fire from heaven, well, Satan can obviously call down fire from heaven. Jesus says, there is one sign that you will always know. It's God. He says, it's the sign of Jonah and the sign of the queen of Sheba. And it's the same sign. And the sign is this, a transformed life. 
that the people of Nineveh repented and were transformed. The queen of Sheba came to Solomon and got saved. And Jesus says the one thing that Satan will never be able to counterfeit is a resurrected, transformed life. He can't do it. This is why Paul says the fruit of the spirit is obvious. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The fruit of the flesh of Satan is also obvious. You can see it. He can't hide it. Jesus says a good tree will bear good fruit, and a bad tree will bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. This is a transformed life. When you're looking for someone to marry or someone to fill a leadership position, or for someone to have a position at school or work or wherever it may be. How do you keep from being deceived? Look for resurrection power. Look for the fruit of the Spirit. Not just somebody who claims to be a Christian, but somebody who shows evidence that they were once dead to sin, but has now been raised to new life. It doesn't mean you're looking for a person who never sins. But what you're looking for is someone who does understand repentance, who is transformed, who once may have been a slave to sin and is now set free from sin, who is exhibiting love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And there's enough fruit in that list that if you happen to come across someone who is by nature just a more gentle person, there's enough other areas to look for to say, but is there resurrection power here? Is this person a new person? Are they on their way? to being more like Jesus. False apostles do not show resurrection life. They can't. No matter what Satan does, he cannot counterfeit that, which is why one of the most powerful things that you and I have against the deceptions of Satan is our own testimonies. He can't fake it. Third clue to look for. And that is a willingness to suffer. Look at verses nine and 10. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now this is speaking of Christians who are living during this time. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. These two witnesses, the 144,000 that we're gonna talk about next week, who are present during this three and a half years, how do we know that they're from God? Because they're willing to suffer. They're willing to suffer for Jesus' sake. They're willing to suffer because God's called them to do that. These two witnesses get a pretty tough job. They gotta die publicly in a humiliating way in a battle with the Antichrist in front of the whole world. They have to do that so that God can show that Satan doesn't have true resurrection power and that in front of the whole world, God can unmask and un un unveil the truth that he does raise people from the dead and he will have them ascend to heaven so that everyone can see it and their willingness to suffer for this to happen is a sign that they are from God. If you're trying to figure out at work this offer or this encouragement, be more involved in work, be more engaged at work. Well, how do you evaluate that? If it's going to cause you to suffer for the sake of your workplace, for the sake of your family, for the sake of the kingdom of God, it's probably from the Lord. 
If on the other hand, you being more devoted to work, you being more engaged and fulfilling is not asking you to suffer, but everybody else to suffer, your family to suffer, church to suffer, the kingdom of God to suffer, so that you can advance your career, that feels like work is a counterfeit, an idol set up by Satan. How do you tell the difference? Things that are from God, people that are from God, is a call and a summons to suffer for God. Satan is active, deceiving and counterfeiting all sorts of things. I'm grateful for Revelation 13, which reminds us all we gotta look for is there love for enemies in here? Is there resurrection life in this? Is there a call and a willingness to suffer for Jesus in this? Now, as we're dismissed today, let me leave you with a word of encouragement. I hope the rest of it was encouraging too. (laughs) But sometimes when people read Revelation 13, they get nervous. Christians. Some people think, what if I accidentally get the mark of the beast? Like, this is a serious deal. Like, what if I accidentally, if I don't realize, I don't think there's going to be anybody stamping 666 on foreheads or hands. It's an image. It's, a, it's, it's going to be trickier than that. <laughs> You're not going to see it that clearly. What if you mistakenly fall into this? Some people would reassure you and say, don't worry, if you're a Christian now, then you're going to participate in the rapture and so you won't be present during this three and a half years time. I do believe that's true, but I don't think that's as reassuring a word as you should be left with. Because that might be helpful for what's coming in three and a half years, or in, during that three and a half year period, but it doesn't answer, what about today? What if I unwittingly get deceived today? What if I get unwilling, unwittingly led astray? The word of assurance or encouragement I see in this passage that I'd like to leave you with this morning is in verse eight. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, who will not be worshiping the beast? All the Christians. It won't be because they're better at sniffing out deception. It won't be because they got better backbone than we have. It won't be because they're all super spiritual. It will be because their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It will be because they have the Holy Spirit and the spirit who is in them is greater than the spirit in the world. And that no matter what Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet do, they cannot counterfeit God's power and his love. And in the midst of the greatest deception that the world will ever see, still God's spirit is the spirit of truth. And so the word of encouragement I want to leave you with today is if you are a believer in Jesus, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And if you were alive during this time, you wouldn't fall for this deception, not because you're smarter than the average bear, but because you have the living God within you. And so the encouragement for you today, we all get tricked. 
we all get deceived. We all think, oh, this person's a really good Christian, and it turns out, like Timothy says, some people's sins are obvious, and some people's sins trail behind them. We all stumble. We all fall. We all see something on the news and think, yeah, that's awesome, only later to find out. I don't think God was actually in that. All of us do that. But the promise of this passage is God's Holy Spirit resides within you. You will stumble, but not fall. That even if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Which is why Jude closes his book with, now to him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only true God, be glory and majesty and dominion and power now and forevermore. My dear friends, do not be afraid. Satan is the great deceiver, but you have the spirit of the living God living in you. You have been sealed. You have a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. You will stumble. You'll be tricked. We'll all mess up. But God's spirit will not let us fall. Let's pray together. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.